Welcome to Hidden Gems Toronto, the podcast that introduces you to a variety of fascinating people and places that fly under the radar but are a vital part of our city's fabric. I'm your host, urban geographer Tom Scanlon, and I invite you to don your virtual hiking boots and join us as we track down these compelling stories. You'd be surprised how many people don't know what a tandem is, which is bicycles built for two. Trailblazers is a recreational club with a twist. We provide cycling for those who have limited or no vision with sighted volunteers on our club-owned tandems. I'm Linda Spinney, and I am president of Trailblazers. We contacted Linda to see if she would like to be a guest on our podcast. But as often happens when you talk to the president of an organization, she had a better idea. Linda suggested we should talk to a volunteer called the captain who sits on the front of a tandem bike and then talk with a blind participant called the stoker who sits on the back. And so we did. We start the interview chatting with volunteer John Tam. He talks about his personal experiences with the organization. And then we talk with Geza Fenuel, who, as a teenager, went for a seemingly fun ride on a go-kart that ended up leaving him completely blind. But as you will learn in this podcast, that tragic event has not slowed him down. The podcast is called Blazing New Trails. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, John, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Glad to be here. So, John, before we get started, I have to say, I just love the name of the organization because you're out there blazing trails on the bike, but you're also trailblazers in the sense of being really creative. So I have a lot of interest in what we're going to talk about today. Maybe you could just give us an overview of your involvement with trailblazers. Sure. I started with the club about 12 years ago, and I've occupied positions on the executive board. And now I'm one of the trainers in the organization. So I'm not only a volunteer captain, but I also do orientations and introduce new volunteers and new members on how to ride a tent. How big is the organization? Do you have full-time employees? Is it all volunteers? We have both salaried staff, but we generously compensate our volunteers with a fun time, laughter, and gratitude. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. How many people who are visually impaired are part of this club? It it has changed. We used to have about 120 volunteers and maybe about 55 to 60 members. But because of the pandemic, the numbers have decreased and we have about 35 members and maybe about 20 volunteers, active volunteers. I'm sure that'll change as COVID winds down. But just for people that don't really know all the logistics, how many tandem bikes do you own? Uh, Let's see. At last count, we own over 35 tandems. They're stored in five different sheds across GTA to serve our members geographically. They are at Etobicoke Civic Center, Royal York and Lakeshore, CNIB at Bayview and Eglinton, uh, the Ferry Docks and Kennedy Station. Oh, you've covered Toronto nicely. And where do you buy these bikes and what do they cost? Roughly two-thirds are donated and one-third are bought. People find us out through word of mouth or They find us through our website and they donate the bikes to us. We offer a tax receipt to them. So we value these donations between $1,200 to $3,000. Wow. But the ones that we do buy, we purchase them with our Trillium grants, which we've been fortunate enough to, to be eligible for two of these throughout the years. We have an ongoing relationship with this bike shop, the MBS Tandems in Mississauga, and we buy them from them because they're the only bike shop 
around the GTA that has actual assembled tenants for people to rent and try. Okay, so you got the bikes. Tell us now, what happens on ride day? What goes down? Well, typically there there are two types of ride days. There are for the group rides. These are the scheduled rides from our website's ride calendar, and these are usually spaced apart every three weeks. We alternate between Saturdays and Sundays to accommodate volunteers and members' different schedules. So on these days, we also have in-town group rides and out-of-town group rides. The in-town group rides usually start from the CNIB location and the out-of-town rides start at a predetermined parking lot where we bring the bikes there and we carpool all the riders to that location. The bikes are then brought out of the shed or unloaded from the trailers and the riders pick their bikes and test them as they arrive to the site. The ride leader describes the route, cautions everyone about the hazards, explains when the rest stops will be, lunch stops, and other things that would interest the group. Then we remind the group about the riding conventions and the etiquettes, like to keep together as a group and not to spread out too much. We also designate a sweeper at the end of the group, and that person's job is to make sure no one gets left behind. We integrate solo riders into the group who sort of group lead and shepherd the group, keep them together. And also the solo riders act as messengers between the front of the group and the back of the group. You're the captain. You're in the front of the bike. During the ride, what are your responsibilities? It's a team effort. So even though I'm going to tell you about the captain's responsibility, we remind the stoker that these responsibilities are theirs as well to double check the captain. So this stoker is the person on the back. How did that name come about? I, I love this question. The term comes from the bygone days of steam engine on trains. A person shoveling the coal into the furnace to make more steam for the train to go faster is called the stoker. They are responsible for stoking the fire keeping the fire fed. The term is amazingly appropriate for tandem cycling because the stoker provides more power to the train than the captain. The stoker's pedals are directly connected to the drive chain, which directly turns the back of the wheel, exactly like on a solo bike. I love that definition. It pays tribute to the hard work performed by the person on the back. Exactly. Tell us more about your responsibility as the captain, John. The captain's responsibility is to select a bike that fits both riders equally comfortably in terms of the seat and the bike size. Our tandems are numbered visually for the captains and in braille for the stokers. This is to help them remember a bike that they like so that they can reselect it. The first thing that the captain does when they take the bike out of the shed is to take it off for a test ride to make sure it's mechanically safe and everything works operationally well like the brakes, the gears, the bells, everything. If there is an issue, and the captain can make a slight adjustment to fix it quickly, then they will, or they'll simply choose another bike. The team works together to adjust the seats to make sure that they are comfortable and the handlebars are in an easy-to-reach position, so they're not stretching to reach the handlebars or pedals or bumping their knees when they pedal. And then the captain does the test ride again, this time with the stoker, and does a double-check that makes sure both riders don't have any loose clothing to get caught up in the chain. Now... Once you're off, I understand you then talk to the person on the back describing the environment as you go through it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We emphasize the necessity for communicating back and forth, right? Like they say in real estate, the three rules of real estate is location, location, location. The three rules of tantrum riding is communicate, 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 right? <laughs> okay. I just thought of something when going back to the mechanics of the bike. I looked at your application form and the visually impaired person, when they fill out the form, one of the questions is, how much do you weigh? Why is weight important on this tandem bike? 
We always ask for both height and weight. Our ride convener matches our riders by similar stature and weight. We always want the person in the front to be heavier or the same weight as the person in the back. We never want a case of the tail wagging dog. A tandem is very difficult to control, even if both riders are the same weight. But if the back uh, rider is significantly taller or heavier, any sudden movements from the back can create a scenario where the bike is upended. Okay. Another thing I think about the tandem bike, a lot of our listeners probably bike and they know how to change gears, but the gears are quite different on a tandem bike, correct? The, the main difference about changing gears on a tandem because essentially is that you have to change them more often to maintain a constant tension on the pedals for the comfort of both riders. And, and this is a safety feature as well. Ideally, you want the tension on the pedals to be the same all the time. So this requires the captain to constantly change the gears to adjust for the slope of the terrain. Here's an example. A cyclist on a single bike can stand up on the pedals and muscle up the hill without downshifting to an easier gear. Okay. This isn't possible on a tandem with a second rider. You have to downshift to climb a hill or to start from a standing stop or else you increase the chances of breaking the chain and then you're walking home. <laughs> okay. That's something to pay attention to for sure. While you're riding, the person on the back, the stoker is not just out for a fun ride. They have a role to play. They're pedaling, but you also have the person on the back give signals, correct? Yeah. Yeah. We have the stoker give hand signals, like traffic signals for left turns and right turns, because it's safer for the captain to keep both hands on the handlebars. The stoker has a responsibility of keeping their center mass centered on the bike so that the bike doesn't shift. I know how you communicate to someone with a visual impairment, but I understand some of your stokers are also deaf. So how would you communicate to them in terms of what signals they should give? In the case of deaf riders, the riders communicate tactfully with pedals or the brakes. One way of doing it is the captain would tap on the brake to indicate that they're ready to start. If they level the pedals where the pedals are the same height from the ground and they wobble them while they're riding, that indicates a bump is approaching. So the, oh, wow. they still would lift their butt off the seat to uh, avoid a shock, right? Very clever. Yeah. There's other signals like the, the captain can reach back and tap the stoker on their hands. And as a team rides together, they develop their own communication gestures. It's quite a partnership. You know what I'm thinking, John? When I go riding, sometimes I daydream and I think I miss some of the beauty that's around me. One of your principal jobs, of course, is to point out to the stoker what you're seeing. But has that also made you more aware of the beauty around you because now you have to communicate it to someone else? I, I don't feel I have that luxury because on a tandem, I need to communicate my actions to the stoker before I even take them. I have to anticipate and say, bump ahead in three, two, one, or stopping ahead in three, two, one. I have to keep focus, scan the road ahead for hazards and plan an exit plan in my head, in my mind's eye and execute it. If a car pulls out, I need to execute my exit plan. So is there still time, though, for you to describe what's around you for the benefit of the stoker? Oh, sure. Usually it's with the new stokers. They want to take in the surroundings. And the, the new stokers are usually the ones that ask captains to describe what they see as they're passing at the park and things like that. Is there like typical questions you seem to get asked? Yeah. Some of the questions that are most often asked are, when are we stopping for lunch? When, <laughs> when, when are we going to get near a washroom? The same as the rest of us, John. Yes. Same as the rest of us. But I've ridden with stokers, sort of opened my eyes. I, I, I've ridden with stokers that ask, what are the street needs? What are the landmarks? These stokers, in their mind's eye, 
they create a visual map and they can memorize routes based on my descriptions and landmarks. Wow. I was about to ask you, what do you like most about this whole activity? But you've hit part of it right there. Could you add to that? At the end of the day, what do you like most about being out on this ride? I like most about going on the rides and having these conversations. We talk about everything under the sun. And it's so effective to do that on a tandem because you're the same distance from the person you're talking to all the time. When you try to do that with another rider on solo bikes, it's not often you have a chance that they're riding beside you for too long. You know? like ah, good point. You, you, usually they have to tuck in behind you to avoid traffic. When you're out there on the tandem bikes, do other people stop? They want to know what you're all about? Oh, my greatest thrill is when we're spotted by young kids who shriek, Look, a double bike. <laughs> 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 I smile to myself and say exactly what this is. Who decided to call this a tandem bike anyway? That's fantastic. Another thing, us on our single bikes, we're always whining about how we get treated by cars and things like that. Do you get any more respect when you're on a tandem bike than I might on a single? I think we do because when we're on the tandem and we come to a four-way stop, the drivers would wave our entire group through. And when cars pass us from behind, they give us such a wide berth. So uh, I don't know. It, it, it could be tandem bikes are bigger and we're easier to see. Maybe also there's just some joy in seeing a tandem bike. It just sort of lightens the mood. Yeah, maybe it's a novelty of it all. I'd like to think that some great friendships formed in an organization like this. I, I saw on your site that the executive director of Trailblazers, who started out as a stoker, ended up marrying her captain. How neat is that? <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> the funny thing is, most people in the club knew that they liked each other before they themselves knew. In fact, Linda says her 10-year-old son knew that they liked each other before they themselves knew. You oh, know? wow. That's and she also told, told me that they're not the first couple in the club to meet and marry. I think she says they may be the second or third. One of the side benefits, I guess. I'm not sure that's <laughs> what it's all about, but I think it's an indication of just how people get along so well. And so that's just an added benefit. Yeah, I, I myself have had long-standing friendships volunteering with this club. One of my friends is responsible for me getting my current day job at Direct Funding Program ah. at the Center for Independent Living in Toronto. That's fantastic. You work doing him a day in this also. You're a volunteer with people with disabilities. So, John, just getting near the end here, if people want to help out with the organization, what is it you need? Should we give money? Do you need more captains? What do you think if you get a chance to reach out to people? All the above. Um, okay. Most importantly, get the word out to people that are visually impaired. They gain so much freedom riding on a bike, and we always give the spiel. Hit us up on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, our Instagram handles, and our website, www.trailblazerstandem.org. We need all the things you mentioned. The one thing that you've sort of implied, John, is when you volunteer for something like this, you think it's for the benefit of the visually impaired person, but it's also a benefit to you as well. So it's a two-sided coin, which I think happens a lot with charitable giving. You're a great example of that. Oh, thank you, Tom. I, I feel selfish because I really get more out of it than I perceive the other person does. This is my passion. Well, I love your enthusiasm, John. We usually end the podcast by asking, what do you like most about living in Toronto? Oh, I love the cultural diversity and all the delicious food that comes from this cultural diversity. I love all the summer street festivals, the taste of damp forth taste a little early. And in the winter, I just go back to these enclaves and eat my way around the world. It's like traveling within a city. Nicely said. John, I know from my experience that 
Volunteers are the backbone of any successful charitable organization. I think Trailblazers is fortunate to have dedicated captains like you. And I feel fortunate to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom. It, it was a great opportunity to talk about my passion, which are the Trailblazers. Next up, we chat with Geza Fenyol, a stoker extraordinaire who talks about his experiences of being visually impaired in Toronto. Hello, Geza. Great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I thought maybe we'd start, just tell us a little bit about your visual impairment. So I have a retinal detachment and I became totally blind at the age of 18, but the whole problem started when I was 16 years old. I was go-karting and I collided several times with the go-kart and the next day I didn't see anything. And then I had surgery, it went through several months, and then I could see it again, and it detached again on both eyes. And then I had mother surgery, so it went like two, three years, and then finally I became totally blinded. Geza, in this last little while, it's been really interesting for me to be emailing and Zooming with you, despite you being blind. Technically, you're able to do a lot of things, including doing some freelance technical work. Are there some advances that have really helped you? Yeah, the computer helps me a lot, scanner helps me a lot, printer helps me a lot. So any kind of technical advance, it helps me a lot. Now, I know Trailblazers has been a big part of your life. How did you originally hear about this organization? I have been in the club for 22 years. So the first time I heard about Trailblazers from my classmate in college, I went to Seneca College, and he told me about Trailblazers. When I heard that and then I joined the club, it was back in 2000. At my first ride, I had a, an orientation ride. So I had to learn how I coordinate with the bike, different techniques, because it's totally different like a single bike. And from what I understand, Trailblazers offers a lot of short rides, but you're kind of like the king of the marathoners, aren't you? You like to go on these long bike rides. Tell us about some of those. Yes, yes, definitely. I like long rides. Usually when I do long rides, it's around like 70K, 100K. A couple of times I did 200K rides. But yes, during the summer, I can do long rides. Then when I do shorter rides, usually around 30, 50K. That's fabulous. You know, I've come to realize that on these rides, you're on the back, but pardon the pun, you aren't along for a free ride. In our interview with John, he talked quite a bit about the hard work and critical role the stoker plays on the ride. I'm thinking all those long bike rides helps keep you fit as well. Is that one of the attractions? Is it like a good workout for you? Yes, it is. Definitely. Yes, it gives me strength, endurance, speed. But the other thing, I had to train for it. So during the winter time, I go to gym and I spin. For the whole year, I work out regularly. So we talked to one of the captains who explained that on the back of the bike, you do have the responsibility of giving signals and things like that. But I've been dying to ask you this question because I've heard that your nickname is GPS. Now, how does a person who can not see get a cool nickname like that? One of the captains gave me that name. His name is John from Niagara. He, he's the Niagara ride organizer. And we had a group ride in Toronto. And he told me he would like to bike back to CNIB on a shorter way, which is not hilly. So and then I, <laughs> I got it from the back and I tell him, okay, which route, which route we have to take, uh, which turn left, right. So I, I navigated him. I know the routes. I like to use GPS and I like to use the map. So every ride when I go out, 
I always map my rides. It's, it's good to know because if something happened to the bike or if we get lost or something, so it's good to know where we are. It's also very good to know which is the closest bike shop if we need help or something. That is so impressive that you listen to the directions beforehand and then have a mental image of the route while you're out on the ride. I think I would want you to be my stoker if I was a captain. Let me ask you this, Kaze. I know along the way, the captain is going to describe a lot of the things that you're going through and what he or she is seeing. At the end of the day, when you get back home and you say you're talking to your friends about the trip you went on that day, are you going to tell them about what the captain described to you or about the sounds, the smells, the feels that you, with your visual impairment, are feeling at the same time as he or she is describing the scenery? Yes, I tell them what, what was the route, what we saw, where we stopped, what we eat, who, who we met. Many things could happen the, during the ride, like if we are passing different farms, there are horses, sometimes we saw different animals. It's good to know if we are passing, let's say, like a creek or fields. So it's always good to know what is around us. So when COVID hit, Geza, I guess there were no more rides. Did you find you really missed it? Yes, yes. Uh, in 2020, I didn't do any rides, but I also am involved with the Achilles Running Club and I spent running on Saturdays. I have guides who are running, so, so that's why I keep in fit. Besides being a stoker, you've also been in management positions over the years with Trailblazers. What have you done at that level? I was a ride convener from 2005 until 2010. I... Uh, I met stalkers, I coordinated rides, I was involved in the executive decision making, and I recruited some captains. I sent out emails to different clubs and asked different cyclists who would like to join. Also, I was involved in fundraising. There is so many things. You've worn a lot of hats, Geza. Let me switch gears just for a bit if we could. Besides the biking, are you able to get out around the city of Toronto on your own? Yes, I do. Yes, I go shopping alone. I go running on Saturdays. I go out to do different errands, so I don't have any problem to get along in Toronto. How do you manage navigating the city on your own when you can't see? So if, if I don't know where I have to go, I always map it. But usually I know where, where can I find the address and I can coordinate my distance. It's challenging, but for me, it's easier to navigate in Toronto because when I, when I travel in Toronto, I have to think like in coordinates. There is the major intersection, Young and Bloor. I think it's because of my background, I came from Europe. So it's much harder to travel in Europe than here in, in Canada, I think, because of the different design of the roads. So would you walk with a cane so other people would know that you're visually impaired? Yes. Yes, I always use cane, yes. And overall, how would you rate Toronto in terms of accessibility and ease of travel for a person with a visual impairment? The, the major problem is the intersections. The major intersections are wide and some of them have audio signals. But even when you cross a road because it's wide, it, it, it is challenging because I have to walk much faster and I have to concentrate much more about the traffic. And then plus because of the car, they can still turn to the right. Sure. So that, that's the most challenging when I'm crossing a major intersection. In terms of low-hanging fruit, are there a couple of simple changes that you wish the city would do to make it easier for you to navigate around Toronto? 
the best way. I think the major intersection that would be like, let's say, like a, a, a textile on the road, they make that intersection when I'm crossing a little bit more rough. So you know what I mean? I can feel so I wouldn't go a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left. I, I couldn't veer. That's the main problem. So it's the width of the intersections and the surface texture that are the main issues for you, eh? For me, it is. But every blind person or visually impaired person is unique. Some people have different problems, different ideas about traffic. For me, it is the major intersections. And when you're out and about, I'm sure people approach to offer assistance. Is that helpful? Do you want strangers coming up to you and saying, can I help you? Yes, yes. I definitely like it. If somebody asks me, yes, I would tell him, yes, I need help. And then I I have been able to cross the road or if I wait in this bus or that bus. Yes, definitely. I have a visually impaired friend. Sometimes he just wishes people would not help him. They say some funny things. They talk slow. They talk loud. They're sort of implying that you have other disabilities. Does that bother you or does that not happen to you? No, okay. no, no. No, for me, absolutely not because I had sight, right? So, and most other people, they don't deal with uh, a with disabled person or blind person. Most of the people do not even know what to say or how they approach it, but there is the good will, and that's the most important thing. I see. Yeah, okay. And, and what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that sighted people have about people with a visual impairment? I think that's also unique because it depends what, what is the environment, where they work, who are their family. So you know what I mean? It depends. You seem to have a great attitude about the, the whole thing, Gaze. You know, when you're wandering around Toronto, what is it you like most about our city? Oh, I like big city. I grew up in big city. There is so many things to do, like clubs, sports, different events, festivals, and much more. In a big city, as a blind person, I always get help. Before you lost your sight, were you in Toronto at that time? No, no. When I lost my sight, I was still back in Europe, in Hungary. And then from Hungary, I went to study in Germany. I lived there four years in Germany, and then I immigrated to Canada. So you don't have a reference point for Toronto from before, so it's all in your mind. I had to learn everything yeah. from the from the beginning, because when I came to Toronto, I didn't even speak English. So I learned even to speak English in the school. I had to do my high school diploma, and then I went to college. So I always learned, 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 learned. But sport was always a major thing in my life. I got to say, Gizzy, you are one inspiring person. I just love talking to you today. I think our listeners are going to appreciate your insights. I hope you have safe and great travels this summer, and I really want to thank you for talking to us today on the podcast. Tom, it was a pleasure. On our next podcast, rather than aim our sights on something that flies under the radar in Toronto, we're going to talk to someone who has become, if not obsessed, certainly passionate about looking at things that fly above the radar. As author Julia Zarankin points out in her terrific new book, Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder, There are more than 350 species of birds in our city, and she is on a mission to see them all if she can. After listening to Julia, you may be compelled to dig out your old binoculars and become a birder yourself. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Sharon Scanlon. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next month.